Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The 2020 American Society of Addiction Medicine National Practice Guideline for the Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder and the 2022 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Clinical Practice Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids for Pain recommend using methadone and buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Historically, access to these medications has been challenging due to the legal requirements of clinics for methadone therapy and the X waiver for buprenorphine prescribing. In 2023, Section 1262 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act will remove the need for the X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. In the wake of this legislative change, pharmacist Tanner Melton reviews literature on methadone and buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. In 2021, there were over 80,000 opioid-related overdose deaths in the United States, setting an all-time high for our country. In the background of this, there were more than 2 million patients had opioid use disorder, but less than a quarter of them were receiving, ad- were receiving adequate treatment. Now, a first step was taken at the end of 2022 with President Biden's signing of the Mainstreaming Addiction Act, Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, which effectively removed the X waiver for buprenorphine. So with this opening up access options, it's time for us to reconsider what medication options we have. And in doing so, I want us to better understand the pathophysiology behind opioid use disorder, go through literature, looking at our two of our main medications, so methadone and buprenorphine, and then ideally look at how pharmacists might be able to play a role in bridging this gap that we see of less than a quarter of patients being treated. Now, if you could all take a second and imagine the lovely feeling of stubbing your toe. So that's a very strong pain response. I know nobody likes it. And so what happens in this setting is when you stub your toe, the pain receptors send a signal to your nerves and that goes through your spinal cord up to your brain to register. There's a pain signal there. And then how do we respond? On a more cellular level, what we see is these neurotransmitters bridging that gap between nerves shown here in this magenta or purple color. And this helps propagate that signal. Now, Now when an opioid is present, whether that be endogenous or exogenous, this uses this binds to a G protein coupled receptor and if uses multiple mechanisms to effectively prevent that signal from moving forward in the periphery. Centrally, it also creates descending inhibitory signals to further prevent this signal. So kind of two different approaches. Now that was a high overview. And if this doesn't already sound a little bit too complicated, we have multiple different receptor types that our opioids can bind to. The main three we want to focus on for today are the mu, kappa, and delta receptors, also more commonly written down in literature as MOR, KOR, and DOR, respectively. All three have their own natural ligands that they would can bind to during um, just natural processes. And all three do play a role in analgesic effects. The one difference is mu in particular does have a few extra uh, effects that it can impact, including gastrointestinal motility and respiratory de- uh, depression. Now, the reason we see this on top of the analgesia is because these opioid receptors are located all throughout our body, going from our spinal cord to the respiratory center in our brain and and even down into our gastrointestinal tract. Now, if we were to continue to use opioids and continuously stimulate these receptors, some physiological changes can start to occur. So the first one is uh, a phenomenon known as tolerance, which is essentially 
best described as essentially needing a higher dose to achieve a particular effect. So whether this is uh, for pain or for euphoria or whatever it is, uh, for any medication, uh, this is that's the phenomenon. And for opioids, there are, for opioid receptors, there are two working theories currently. The first is receptor desensitization. So with uh, chronic use, essentially the receptors don't respond as well as they used to, and the pain, any pain nullification they have kind of goes down. And then the other working theory is downregulation. So with chronic stimulation, the body re responds by just decreasing the number of available receptors. And in either case, what this means is with the same dose that we've been using for however long, the effect may not, the effect may not be what we would have expected, so we'll need a higher dose to achieve it. The next situation that we run into is one called hyperalgesia, which is unique to chronic opioid use. And this has occurred, this is the theory is that this occurs through the in increase of pro-nociceptive neurotransmitters. So what happens here is, let's say, again, lovely image, you drop a hammer on your foot, and you would expect maybe a two or three out of 10 pain, however that works for you. Well, if you are experiencing hyperalgesia, that pain response can jump up to something like a six. So it's a disproportionate pain response to an otherwise normal stimulus. And the last situation that we can see is withdrawal. So what happens with chronic use is your body gets used to having a medication on board and creates a balance with its normal physiologic processes and tries to just maintain us there. And when we abruptly remove that medication, and in this image, we do have opioids. However, this can go for any medication that we use chronically, just as a FYI. Uh, with opioids, this will lead to symptoms such as cravings, sweating, anxiety, diarrhea, amongst many other symptoms, given that we have receptors all throughout our body. And with withdrawal intolerance in particular, even further use and prolonged use can lead to two, dis two distinct syndromes that we should need to really delineate before we go further. So the first one is dependence. And this is just best defined as a continued use of a, any medication, and opioids, and, and having neurological and physiological adaptations that lead to withdrawal symptoms upon discontinuing of, of a medication. The second syndrome that we look at is known as addiction. However, after this, I would like to refer to this as use disorder, particularly opioid use disorder in our case, really focusing on patient first language and trying to destigmatize what we're talking about today. And the main difference between these is with a use disorder, this is looked at more of a treatable chronic disorder that's caused by these changes impacting a patient's quality of life. And in particular, it can be characterized by some behavioral changes to obtain a medication and obtain a certain effect. And these two do get confused quite often uh, in terms of their definitions because there are a lot of similarities. And just to be clear, somebody who is dependent on a medication is, does not have a use disorder necessarily. The way we go about defining that is actually laid out by our, the DSM-5. They have a total of 11 criteria that we can look at. And as long as two or more are present, we have clinically diagnosable opioid use disorder. And these different criteria look at tolerance, withdrawal, and then a variety of other criteria that are focusing on the behavioral changes that might happen and risky behaviors or uh, other physiological adaptations in a variety of different kinds of settings. And based on the number of criteria that we have present, can actually grade the opioid use disorder. So mild being two to three of these criteria, patients at this level are not technically indicated for treatment with uh, medications. However, this would be a collaborative decision-making process with the patient to see what the best step forward is since they do have opioid use disorder and we wanna do our best to help them. Moving into moderate, that's uh, four to five criteria being present and then severe being six or more criteria present. Both of these, in both of these groups, patients are indicated for 
some sort of treatment for opioid use disorder. And we do still want to keep the patient involved with decision making, but the recommendation at this point is we really want to start some sort of treatment. The one caveat I do want to make with this is withdrawal intolerance being their own uh, criteria. If a patient is using opioids appropriately for chronic pain or another situation that is properly managed and um, observed by a practitioner, those two do, per DSM-5 do not actually count towards these criterias. So we want to look at the other nine in that case to see what's going on for somebody who's using it chronically under another indication to make sure we're not missing some uh, underlying opioid use disorder that might be developing, particularly with us prescribing opioids. We want to make sure in our compassion to help the patient feel better and manage things that we don't accidentally perpetuate an opioid use disorder that might be brewing or worsening. And this is really important because if we leave an uh, opioid use disorder untreated, we can perpetuate those social impacts that we've already talked about. So feelings of isolation, risk of suicide, or risky behaviors to obtain the medication out of a desire or craving for those effects. And we can also continue to have the risk of accidental overdoses. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are more than 80,000 opioid-related overdose deaths already in the U.S. in 2021. So if we can mitigate this at all, we that's our strongest desire, as well as trauma associated with using opioids in unsafe conditions, such as motor vehicle accidents or using heavy machinery or anything else like that. And then finally, if a patient ends up trying to use these medications intravenously by whatever means, usually in these settings, we're looking at this is at home or in an unclean, unsterile environment. So we run the risk of developing infections such as HIV, hepatitis, and endocarditis, which carry a lot of mortality and morbidity with these conditions as well. And this rounds out our discussion on the pathophysiology behind kind of how opioid use disorder comes about and brings us to our first question. So which of the following pairings is most correct when we use a particular word in a definition? So the first pairing, A, being tolerant, paired with increased sense of pain to a stimulus. B, withdrawal, paired to reduction of receptors after continued use of a substance. C, dependence paired with experiences withdrawals upon discontinuation of a medication, and then D, hyperalgesia, release of neurotransmitters to propagate a pain response. All right, so it looks like the responses are starting to slow down a little bit, and I would have to agree with the majority on this one, that C, dependent, being uh, paired with experiences withdrawals upon discontinuation would be the correct answer. Uh, a is not correct because, in this case, tolerant is paired with the definition of hyperalgesia, and the proper definition of tolerant would be something like OEC actually for uh, option B, so reduction of receptors after continued use of a substance. And so moving to B, withdrawal, a better uh, definition for that would be uh, effects seen upon discontinuation of a medication after uh, physiological adaptations, similar to maybe the definition for dependence in this case. And lastly, hyperalgesia is currently paired with just the normal definition of how a pain uh, response is propagated through our nervous system. So now that we have a decent understanding of how the pathophysiology of opioid use disorder comes about, we can start talking about the FDA-approved medications. Oh, there it goes. Uh, FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder. So currently, there are three that we primarily focus on being methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. So on one end of the spectrum, we have methadone, which, for all intents and purposes, acts very similar to an opioid mimic or an opioid replacement in this sense, in, that, in the sense that it binds to the mu receptor in a very similar manner as other opioids and uh, works to prevent withdrawal symptoms and can also address pain in this manner. 
just by acting very similar to those receptors. So as you see in this picture, it binds to that receptor being fairly perfectly as other opioids, pretty similar kinetics and uh, other considerations, as well as risk for respiratory depression. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum with naltrexone, this is a complete mu antagonist. So this effectively just blocks the receptors and prevents anything from binding and does not bind to the inside of the receptor itself. And what this does is it does not actually address any withdrawal symptoms. In fact, it can precipitate withdrawals if you use it too early because it prevents any opioids that are being used. It just ejects them out and then prevents them from binding. And then it is at these doses that we're using, it does not address any pain. Uh, and since it doesn't stimulate anything, we don't have respiratory depression. So that's something to consider. Now, sitting somewhere in the middle of all of this is buprenorphine, kind of the subject of a lot of discussion and literature and recent news headlines, kind of like I brought up earlier. So this one, it is a partial mu agonist, as well as having a mix of antagonism and agonism activities at different receptors involved with opioids. And focusing on that partial mute agonist, it was initially presumed that partial agonism meant partial efficacy in terms of opioid use disorder treatment, uh, analgesic effect, as well as respiratory depression. However what, however, what we see is that buprenorphine does quite well at addressing withdrawal, and we'll look at some literature really digging into that. It does address pain adequately, and I'll show something on the next slide where we can see that visually. And we do actually see a ceiling effect with respiratory depression. So that is the one situation where that partial agonism fits in that picture. So we, at increasing doses, we do end up having a cap at how much depression we have by buprenorphine alone. And as I promised, when we look more at how buprenorphine interacts with the mu receptor particularly and its occupancy of the receptor at different doses, we see starting all the way at one milligram of buprenorphine, we have about a 20% occupancy rate and this slowly increases until we hit about seven milligrams and 80% occupancy, at which point we hit a slower plateau, ranging anywhere from 80 to 95% occupancy, never quite hitting that 100%, up to a recorded 32 milligrams at this point. And this occupancy is important because we actually have some interesting cutoffs that help us understand how buprenorphine works. So at five to 10% is the occupancy needed to achieve an analgesic effect. So even at the one milligram dose, we are above that occupancy. So at any dose above that, we theoretically should be seeing uh, analgesic effects from buprenorphine. So it can be used to manage pain in patients with opioid use disorder that happen to have concomitant pain. And this holds up true in the literature that we see as well comparing this in a lot of uh, patients. Moving up higher to 50%, this is the occupancy needed to inhibit any cravings that patients might be having going through withdrawal. And this lines up at about four milligrams, which we'll talk about later on in the presentation why that number is important. And then lastly, at about 80%, I already called that out as the seven milligram dose approximately. This is the cutoff needed to really block the effect of other opioids that might be used while using buprenorphine. And this blockage is kind of interesting because this is occurring by uh, buprenorphine have a, having a significantly higher affinity to the mu receptor than our other opioids. So even if a patient were to try and use opioids while using buprenorphine, the bu buprenorphine has such a high uh, binding affinity and binds so much more tightly that the other opioids just really can't get into those receptors. And while we do have that little range of unoccupied receptors that can be bound, the majority will effectively be blocked from those other opioids. And so when we take a step into the real world, uh, looking at a retrospective comparative effectiveness study comparing 
are looking at patients that had either commercial insurance or Medicare Advantage claims with a, diagno with a clinical diagnosis code of opioid use disorder. We were, they split them into six groups looking at how they were essentially handled, whether it was no treatment, some variation of behavioral treatment, methadone or buprenorphine together in the same group, or naltrexone on its own. And the goal is to see in this relatively real world, real world study, how did these end up faring in terms of reducing opioid overdose and acute care use? And what they had for the population average was approximately a 48-year-old 48, 48 Caucasian male with the majority of the population that we saw. Now, for our groups, focusing specifically on our medications that we want to use for opioid use disorder, so naltrexone and then the buprenorphine and methadone group together, we see at both three months and 12 months measures, buprenorphine and methadone significantly reduce the risk of overdoses and acute care use. And this study defined acute care use as either an inpatient admission or an ED visit for the management of an opioid, of an opioid primary diagnosis. So something along the lines of overdose or a fall or sedation or something in that realm or any other diagnosis code. Now, Trexone conversely did not significantly reduce the risk in any of our groups. And so therefore we start to think that it may not be as effective across the board compared to our two medications. But before we really dig anything home, we wanna look at the limitations that the study had and that the groups were not randomized. So there is always a concern in this case, since it's a retrospective cohort, that there was some prescribing bias or selection bias that we need to consider uh, when looking at these groups, particularly if you saw the non-intensive group or kind of the other group at 24,000 patients, which is about 70-80%, very similar to the current demographic we're seeing that a lot of patients aren't receiving treatment. The other difference is that between all these groups, there were differences in the breakdowns of insurance coverage, their age, sex, and number of mental health diagnoses. So there's no discernible pattern to this, but it does lead to some idea that there is some selection bias that could be happening is something that we have to consider just as we look at these different studies going forward. And then the next one is that almost half of them were disenrolled from their insurance by the end of the study, so by the 12-month cutoff. And this essentially meant is that they were censored in this study prior to that 12-month ratio that we saw. So anything we saw at the 12-month was about half the patients as the beginning of the study. And that's something one to consider for the, uh, the analysis of this study, but also just real world that insurance is still an issue for patients to stay on these treatments. And the last one is we had a very small naltrexone group, less than a thousand patients, and they did include oral naltrexone, which is important because that's not really a recommended modality anymore for naltrexone. And so that could have really pulled down some of the naltrexone data to say why it maybe showed that it was not effective. But regardless, based on this study, we come out with this feeling that methadone and buprenorphine are more effective at reducing overdoses and acute care use. And this translates over to our current guidelines. So the main two being the CDC 2022 opioid use guidelines and the American Society of Addiction Medicine 2020 guidelines, which effectively say during the withdrawal phase and maintenance phase, both methadone and buprenorphine are strongly recommended to be used. And by withdrawal phase, we're thinking coming off of that initial opioid and getting started up on this new maintenance regimen. So that could be anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, kind of depending on our patient. And then the maintenance phase being, we have a good steady stable dose that we can keep our patient stable on. And now look at this as a chronic treatable disease state and just keep going for there for however long the patient needs it. Conversely, again, naltrexone, not recommended in that withdrawal phase because it actually can make our withdrawal effects worse and really turn a patient away from wanting to pursue opioid use disorder management. 
And then the maintenance phase, it is somewhat recommended, just not as strongly as our other two, because it, it requires a very specific pa patient population of patients that have been absent from opioids for a period of time and are highly motivated. So it pretty, puts a pretty narrow window on who we can use these, this medication option in, and it's usually the extended release version of naltrexone. So because of that, we're going to put naltrexone to the side for the rest of the conversation and really look at how methadone buprenorphine can help us get started on treatment and then maintain the treatment. And in doing so, the four measures I want us to think about are the retention between the two, how much they can reduce substance use, um, any mortality differences between the two in terms of their safety, and then lastly, any logistics between them that might make us pick one or the other. And not shown currently, but on the top right corner of the slide, you will start to see these four boxes, and they will be highlighted according to which ones we are covering based on that study. So the first meta-analysis we want to look at, which is one that's been brought up a lot in recent literature and really holds a lot of weight to how we view buprenorphine and methadone in particular, uh, took buprenorphine and split it into first two groups, compared it to placebo and compared it to studies that looked at buprenorphine versus methadone across eight different outcomes that essentially looked at the retention. So one of the main four we talked about, the use of different substances, including opioids, cocaine, and benzodiazepines, and looked at any differences in mortality, as well as criminal activity. And focusing on the, so for buprenorphine versus placebo, there was essentially either no difference because, because of the fact that there was so little data, or buprenorphine was superior to placebo because we had more robust data. So based on that, we'll spend more time on our point of interest, buprenorphine versus methadone. And what we see was in this situation, the population was again, majority male, approximately 30 years old. And looking at seven of our eight outcomes, there was no difference between the two. So in terms of opioid use or other substances, other substance use and mortality, there was no difference between the two. And in terms of mortality, a few studies even showed within this that there was a mortality reduction compared to control groups. The one we wanna focus on though, is the retention. Because in this study, they approached retention and treatment a little differently, and they had a flexible group compared to a fixed dose group. And in this fixed dose group, it was just, here's your dose, you're done, go through the whole study, and we'll see how you do. And it lets us have a direct comparison between buprenorphine and methadone. Conversely, the flexible kind of mimics more of a real-life situation where we want to adjust the dose to a patient's needs. And looking at the fixed dose in particular, we did have this stratified into three dosing uh, ranges. So the low dose regimen being less than six milligrams of buprenorphine or less than 40 milligrams of methadone essentially showed that yes, methadone is better in this situation, but in both cases, neither are particularly effective at re uh, retention anyway. So we'll focus more of our time on that medium to high dose regimens, which was 40 milligrams of methadone or higher and seven milligrams of buprenorphine or higher. And what we saw in these fixed regimens was there was essentially no difference between methadone and buprenorphine in these fixed uh, studies. And when we look at the, the buprenorphine receptor occupancy graph again, we see that the seven milligrams falling at the, about the 80% occupancy hits all three of our main cutoff targets that we were talking about earlier. And this could explain why, even though it's considered a partial agonist, we have similar efficacy in this situation. Hopefully this plays out in the flexible dosing. So let's see what happens. So when we look at the flexible dosing regimens, the dose ranges were from methadone of 30 milligrams and up, and then buprenorphine, the lowest uh, dose was an average of nine milligrams in this case. But the odds ratio here showed that, buprenorph that methadone was superior. So 
when we look at our occupancy graph again, we do see that nine milligrams was over 80% occupancy. So we, based on what we just talked about, we would have expected that maybe these two should have similar efficacy in terms of retention. And what I would argue is that the main difference is that is that buprenorphine initiations varied between these studies. So some used a very slow initiation of two milligrams, no more than two milligrams a day for a few days. And some used a more rapid initiation up to eight milligrams on that first day, and then 12 to 16 milligrams on the second day. So our takeaway at this point has to be that methadone has a better retention than buprenorphine in that flexible kind of real world dosing regimen. And this is possibly impacted by a slow initiation protocol. Jumping forward to 2022, looking at another meta-analysis that really focused on retention and opioid use, uh, focusing on the retention in this case because they did not have enough data in their study to properly assess opioid use by the end of their analysis. They looked at four different options of buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, and slow-release morphine for opioid use disorder ret uh, retention. And again, we'll focus just on methadone versus buprenorphine for here. Similar population of majority males, approximately 34 years of age in this case. And this study showed that methadone was, again, superior, in this case, a risk ratio of about 1.2. But in terms of absolute retention, the difference was about 10%, 64% of patients with methadone and 54% of patients on buprenorphine being retained in their uh, treatment studies. And again, similar to the last one, the limitations of this study were the heterogeneity in these study designs. So not only did we have a variety of time differences of some studies being two weeks, some studies being a full year, but we also had rapid and slow initiations. We had studies that maxed out at 16 milligrams, so you couldn't get those higher dose options. And then we also had fixed versus flexible dosing regimens within this meta-analysis. So very a lot of factors going into why this might be showing that methadone is superior in this case. And again, my takeaway would be that methadone does have better retention than buprenorphine based on this data. But again, it's pop, this could be statistically impacted by that slow initiation protocol and getting, trying to get patients up and running. So with all this talk about initiation protocols, do we have a good definition of a rapid one? Well, yes. Thankfully, our guidelines have supplied a relatively good idea of what our more rapid appropriate initiation would be for buprenorphine, and we can compare that to methadone. So in the case of buprenorphine with that high binding affinity, we do want to wait a little bit of time for that first opioid to go through a couple of uh, half-lives before we start it up. A good way to assess this is a Cal score of 8 to 12, depending on which reference you look at, before starting buprenorphine so that it doesn't eject any opioids and start some withdrawal symptoms. Methadone, though, we can start up right away, uh, the first initial dose being up to 30 milligrams, maxing out at 40 milligrams on that first day. Versus with buprenorphine, we can max out at 8 milligrams on that first day, start with our first dose being 2 to 4 milligrams, and then redosing throughout the day. Where they start to diverge significantly is starting on the next few days. Buprenorphine, we can ramp it up to that 16 milligram dose by the third day quite easily. Versus with methadone, we have to be very slow with our dose increases, increasing by no more than 10 milligrams, no faster than every five days, because it has a significantly longer half-life, and there are concerns about accumulation and what that means for side effects. And we'll talk about that more later, but this slows down our perceived initiation for methadone significantly. The last consideration is as of now, buprenorphine can actually be initiated at home potentially for the right patient. So we have a lot more flexible options in general for the use of buprenorphine versus methadone is still initiated either in an inpatient setting or through a methadone specific clinic. Now, the next question would be, do we have any studies that actually use this rapid initiation? And there was a little spoiler because I said a rapid initiations earlier. 
And we do. So looking at one study that was a randomized controlled trial of six clinics in Bavaria, working with 140 patients that were admitted for the, for the purpose of treatment for opioid use disorder. Their outcomes that they were looking at were retention rate and reduction between these two medications, or reduction of opioid use between these two medications. And they use that flexible dosing model that we want to look at, so a real-life model, a rapid initiation protocol like what I just described, and they looked at it over six months. So not our longest study, but it gives a good idea of the initiation phase and how it can start to play out to some of a more chronic perspective. And what we see is by the end of the study, there is no significant difference in the retention in this case. In terms of absolute numbers, 50, about 55% of the patients on or methadone and about 48% of the patients on buprenorphine were retained in their study. So this one had about a 7% difference, but that led to no st statistically significant difference between the two of them. And the other measure in terms of substance use, both ended up having about 23% of their patients having positive urinalyses by the end of the study, but this was the same in both groups. So they did reduce overall um, opioid use, but they still had some patients that were uh, using opioids outside of these medications, but they did it in the same fashion. Now, what I find interesting is that the average doses for these, for methadone was about 49 milligrams and for buprenorphine was around 11 milligrams. And these both fell in that medium dosing range that we talked about earlier. So now that we see a medium dose with a rapid initiation, these effects, these differences are starting to become smaller. And though not supplied in this study in particular, when Maddox did that meta-analysis that I brought up earlier, they gave this study a, a retention hazards ratio of 0.98. So these, based on two different uh, groups analyses, this study essentially showed that buprenorphine had the same retention rate and a reduction in opioid use as methadone when we were using that more rapid initiation protocol. So with all that, I feel like we've probably beaten uh, retention to death a little bit now and that we have a good idea of how these two lie relative to each other and we have not spent a whole lot of time talking about the mortality differences so one study out of australia which was a retrospective cohort study looked at specifically buprenorphine and methadone again majority male age 30 to 39 year old uh, patient population and they wanted to see what were the differences in mortality compared to each other so the first caveat being these both reduced mortality in patients that for opioid use disorder compared to no treatment period. So with that out of the way and that understanding, this one took that step of how do they compare to each other specifically? And so they used a measure called the mortality rate ratio to kind of compare these two. And then they stratified it in the first four weeks of treatment. So that initiation phase, kind of that ramp up phase, and then the remainder of treatment or chronic treatment which ended up being on average about five months per person or four and a half to five months for uh, average individual. But the overall monitoring period was 6.7 years because patients actually did come back to clinic and retry and retry. So we had multiple visits that occurred as well. And what we saw was that in the initial, in the initiation phase, the all-cause mortality had a, a mortality rate ratio of 2.22 of methadone compared to buprenorphine, which tells us that buprenorphine is significantly safer, safer across the board for mortality in this early uh, period. And then for a specific opioid-related mortality, so looking at opioid overdoses or respiratory depression or anything along those lines, the rate ratio went up to eight of methadone versus buprenorphine, really pushing that buprenorphine might be a safer option in this earlier window. And then we let's extend it out to the rest of treatment. So let's say we get to month three or four, getting that chronic use for some of those patients. 
the rate ratio dropped to 1.74 for all cause mortality. So a little bit lower than what we saw in the initial phase, but buprenorphine still came out as a little bit of that safer option. But then the opioid related mortality was ratio was 1.16. So at this point, long-term, there's no difference for the opioid specific mortality between the two medications, but they did have differences in all cause, all cause mortality. And my takeaway for this is just that during initiation, buprenorphine appears to be a much safer option for patients uh, if we're concerned about the risk of opioid-related overdoses or anything like that. And some of these mortality differences can be best explained by looking at the pharmacokinetic differences between our two medications. So taking a little bit of a step back in big picture, in terms of formulations, buprenorphine has, as you can see, a lot of different formulation options. So we have some flexibility with how we interact with patients on that level uh, versus methadone is just a tablet or an oral solution that we use for opioid use disorder. And the one key interesting thing for buprenorphine is that it has a combination tablet with naloxone, which is helpful in that if we are concerned about diversion or inappropriate use and trying to use this intravenously, well, at that point, the naloxone would be released at concentrations that prevent respiratory depression and euphoric effects, trying to mitigate the desire to divert this medication. And there's nothing available like that for methadone currently. Going through some of the more, the other now specific PK parameters for analgesic duration, they both can treat pain for about six to eight hours. So in terms of their overall duration, very similar on that front, similar cravings inhibition of 24 hours with methadone inching out a little bit ahead at possibly 36 hours for that cravings inhibition. Now where they really start to diverge is their half-lives. So for the sublingual tablet of buprenorphine, the half-life is about 24 to 48 hours versus with methadone, it's anywhere from eight to 60 hours or yeah, eight to 60 hours. So not only is this a wild range, but that 60 hours really puts us at concern for that for accumulation and risk of side effects, which is why our initial initiation was a lot slower for methadone and can also explain why maybe during these initiation protocols, patients have more side effects if they're on this slower end and they're accumulating significantly. And the difference for this is because uh, methadone has a lot of CYP enzymes that it interacts with. The main, some of the main ones I want us to remember is CYP3A4, 2C19, and 2C9, which means not only is there a lot of pharmacogenomic possibilities here that can impact how it's metabolized, but it also has a lot of drug-drug interactions. And of course, us as pharmacists are crazy about looking for drug-drug interactions. So this one can be hard to use sometimes depending on what patients are already on versus buprenorphine is only a 3A4 substrate. So significantly less options for variability in how it's metabolized as well as less drug-drug interactions. And then last is the precautions overall for methadone. The main things that we're worried about is since it's a mu mimic essentially, or an opioid mimic, and it acts just like an opioid. It does have the full respiratory depression risk, and therefore with accumulation, we run that risk of an overdose. It also, through its other receptors that we did not get into because we did not have time for all of it, it can cause QT prolongation, and therefore the risk of arith fatal arrhythmias. And that's another way, looking at the all-cause mortality, another consideration we have for why this accumulation is dangerous for some patients. Conversely, buprenorphine, yes, we have respiratory depression, but it has a ceiling effect. And the other consideration is that initially, because of its binding affinity, we do have to worry about that withdrawal risk. But if we wait for the patient to come off their opioid a little bit and use our COWS scoring system, we can try and mitigate this. And this, for now, rounds out our overall discussion. 
So things that I want us to think about based on all this when we select between the two medications is when we think about retention, we looked at two meta-analyses that essentially said methadone is better than buprenorphine, particularly when we look at that flexible dosing regimen and that real-life uh, option that we would use. But then that one randomized controlled trial that we looked at that used the proper initiation protocol that we would prefer nowadays, noted there was no difference between the two. Looking at term reduction in opioid use, both the first meta-analysis we looked at and that randomized controlled trial essentially said they are both effective and both similarly effective. From a mortality aspect, the first meta-analysis said there's no difference between the two, and for what data we had, they performed better than the control groups. However, when we looked at the Australia group, or the Australia uh, retrospective cohort study, this noted that especially early on, buprenorphine might be that safer option. And lastly, from a logistics perspective, looking at our guideline induction protocols, buprenorphine, in my opinion, does seem to edge out ahead of methadone because you can get them up to a maintenance dose in a matter of days versus with methadone, it's gonna be a matter of weeks. So it's a lot faster of a moving process and you can see if this patient is going to be, be more likely to be retained on buprenorphine at that point. And then from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, less drug-drug interactions and a better safety profile would make me think buprenorphine would start to edge out over methadone in that case. Now to see if we've got this nailed down, we can apply this to a patient case. So we're gonna meet TY, who's our 40 year old Caucasian male. So matching a lot of what our studies kind of primarily looked at in this case, is currently presenting to the emergency department with an arm fracture after a fall at home. So we need more information. So going back a few months, he actually had a motor vehicle accident where he broke his leg. And upon dismissal from the hospital, he was sent home with some opioids. And to keep it short, over time, he continued to use the opioids and admitted to using them for more of a euphoric effect as opposed to pain control, and eventually was clinically diagnosed with opioid use disorder, but then today is presenting to the ED after a fall associated to this opioid use, where he, as we said, fractured his arm. So, And now he's saying, yes, I'm amenable to starting pharmacotherapy for opioid use disorder. So based on all of that, I would like you to place a dot for which medication you think is the best to start TYN, to, or start TY on and your degree of confidence in that. I think the pins have slowed down a little bit. So overall, we have people leaning primarily towards buprenorphine with a fair amount of confidence. A couple of people saying methadone and some people kind of still uncertain. And you all have valid reasons for this uh, argument. From when I think about these medications, my takeaway is they have similar rates of opioid use reduction and they're both very effective. So you can make the argument for either. The specific factors I would try to incorporate is that methadone has that higher retention possibly, has, but has more drug-drug interactions and that QT prolongation and the slower initiation. Versus buprenorphine does have a potential mortality benefit, especially early on, has fewer drug-drug interactions and has that more rapid initiation that we can use, just being mindful about not precipitating withdrawal. And really the kicker for me that leans the balance over towards buprenorphine is that it has that preferred safety profile uh, and overall a little bit safer to use. And that's why I would want to start TY on buprenorphine, at least for the first run through. But as I said, they have similar rates of efficacy, uh, particularly, for, particularly for opioid use reduction. So why do we only have 22.1% of our patients receiving appropriate treatment for this? Well, there are numerous barriers in the way, the first one being just general stigma around what we used to call addiction. 
And I move that we start calling using patient first language for this, saying patients with opioid disorders, not addicts, not addiction. And if we can try to say this pharmacotherapy for opioid use disorder, really try and destigmatize the situation and recognize that it's a chronic treatable disorder, much like something like hypertension or diabetes. And it does not need to be this grandiose thing. For the other one being concerns of an aversion, the data has been inconsistent with this initial belief. Actually, antibiotics are diverted more than uh, these medications are, just as a fun fact. But nonetheless, if you are really concerned about it, we do have the buprenorphine naloxone combination to try and mitigate this risk as well. So we have other options. People feeling like they have a lack of education or training. Well, this grand rounds is one step at that. And as well as going through educational modules that your companies may be providing for you is a good way to just feel comfortable with everything. From an insurance perspective, we all love insurance. Uh, really just making sure to take steps to try and expand overall coverage of not only these medications, but reimbursement rates for uh, the management of these patients in clinics and everything so we can get, improve our access. And the last, legal and regulatory barriers. So methadone's had a call out for a while now that we should deregulate it and make it more accessible instead of being focused primarily on clinics. But for buprenorphine, we did have a step, as I mentioned, as the elimination of that X waiver. And what this essentially did was that, okay, now more prescribe, no, now more providers can prescribe because we don't have to get this X waiver for clearance to prescribe buprenorphine. Uh, there is now no cap to the number of patients that we can treat. And theoretically, more providers means more geographical locations, which means more access. So addressing the first two points, well, we still need a DEA license and the DEA has announced that we need eight hours of education to qualify to use buprenorphine, but this is miles more streamlined compared to what we have for the X waiver of buprenorphine. Now for the last two, the for, now for the last two points of no cap to the patients and reaching more patients, I don't wanna overburden my healthcare uh, comrades. So what's our solution here? Well, telemedicine can help, especially with the access points, but I think pharmacists can actually be a very critical role in improving access and care to these patients. Before you go saying, well, we just lost the X waiver, this is too many steps, I don't like change, it's moving too fast. We do have some clinics that pharmacists have been very effective at helping with management of chronic uh, disease states already. So when we look at diabetes, we had significant A1C reductions compared to uh, provider-led groups. For the hypertension clinics, significantly more patients achieving blood, blood goal attainments. For anticoagulation clinics with warfarin, significantly more patients uh, achieving time and therapeutic range. And then the last one, another one that's been considered confusing or difficult or hard to manage is clozapine. And it has its own regulatory barriers of the REMS program. So another similar kind of buprenorphine has a lot of steps we got to go through. Involvement of pharmacists improved the monitoring rates of ECGs, lipids, and glucose levels. In a particular, ECG monitoring went from 0% up to 15%. So although it's still not done a lot, it went from at least it's being monitored now. So I think these start to make the argument that we can be an effective tool in helping reach these patients. And if that's not enough, we actually do have some evidence for office-based buprenorphine treatment clinics coupled with three different pharmacies in North Carolina. And their pharmacists went, underwent module training similar to what we have now with the DEA requirements, as well as coaching sessions with providers. And then they were given patients that were in the maintenance phase of buprenorphine and at six months, they had an over 90% visit adherence, an 88% treatment retention rate, and over 98% patient satisfaction. 
So as if, in terms of feasibility, this starts to tell me that this might be a very practical option that patients actually would enjoy it and actually find use of it. And this would take a burden off of our provider, off of some of our providers. And if you need even more, uh, another suburban health department in Maryland had a similar situation where they had a pharmacist position kind of collaborative practice, looking at 12 patients, getting in it, getting their initial intakes on buprenorphine over a 12-month period, and they saw a 91% attendance rate for their visits and a 12-month retention rate overall of 73%. And this one actually uniquely led to a state-approved opioid use disorder therapy management agreement. So the one caveat here is if your state has a DEA, allows pharmacists to get DEA licenses, I would advise that you can pursue that versus if we don't have the ability to get a DEA license, you can still do a lot of this through a collaborative practice agreement. And with that brings us to our final question, which of the following statements is true regarding the role of pharmacists, the role pharmacists can play in helping expand access to opioid use disorder treatment. So A, involvement of pharmacists will have no impact. B, involvement of pharmacists will reduce adherence. C, involvement of pharmacists can help expand access and retain patients. Or D, involvement of pharmacists will significantly improve outcomes. I'd say we have a consensus at this point. So the majority went with C, involvement of pharmacists in opioid use disorder clinics can help expand access and retain patients. I would agree with that statement. Uh, the first one, A, is not correct, just because we do have a way to say we can at least help maintain patients in this situation, so it's not that we will have no impact. Um, and if you want to go from a statistical analysis, we don't have great comparisons to make statistical claims either in that realm. Uh, for B, that we will reduce adherence. Again, no comparative data, but also looking at the other studies, we had less retention in our studies that we looked at in the meta-analyses compared to what we have here, suggesting that we might help adherence. And then D is not correct, because to say we significantly improve outcomes would need more randomized controlled trials and better statistical data to really drive home that point. So at this point, it's easier, it's most true to say we can help expand access and still help retain patients on their therapies. And with that, if you can take away just one thing for today, is that buprenorphine has a similar efficacy to methadone. That is my big takeaway for all of us today. If you can take away six more things, I would say, remember to use patient-first language and really help to destigmatize the situation for patients. Uh, remember that buprenorphine's partial agonism is not the same as partial efficacy. That methadone and buprenorphine re both reduce cravings and mortality. Buprenorphine is a potential or potentially safer option. Uh, removal of the X waiver can increase access opportunities. And lastly, I would argue that pharmacists are in a prime position to reach more patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.